The epistle for this fifth Sunday after the Epiphany is taken from St. Paul's letter to the Colossians, chapter 3. Brethren, put on as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, a heart of mercy, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. Bear with one another and forgive one another. If anyone has a grievance against any other, even as the Lord has forgiven you, so also do you forgive. But above all these things, have charity, which is the bond of perfection. And may the peace of Christ reign in your hearts. Unto that peace indeed you were called in one body. Show yourselves thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you abundantly. In all wisdom, teach and admonish one another by psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing in your hearts to God by his grace. Whatever you do, in word or in work, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through Jesus Christ our Lord. Please stand for the gospel. The gospel is taken from the 13th chapter of the Gospel of St. Matthew. At that time, Jesus spoke this parable to the crowds. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men were asleep, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. And when the blade sprang up and brought forth fruit, then the weeds appeared as well. And the servants of the householder came and said to him, Sir, didst thou not sow good seed in thy field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. And the servants said to him, Do you will that we go and gather them up? No, he said, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at the harvest time I will say to the reapers, Gather up the weeds first, and bind them in bundles to burn, but gather the wheat into my barn. Please be seated. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, amen. Dear Reverend Father, dear faithful, when our Lord came upon this earth, there were two possible opposing forces to the message that he wanted to bring to the world. On the one hand, you had the polytheistic world of the Romans. On the other hand, you had the monotheistic world of the Jews. And if we kind of try to imagine the Jews in the centuries before our Lord came, and they're, and they're sitting around the table at night, and, and they're thinking to themselves, what will it be like when the Messiah comes? Will, what do you think will happen? Will, will people accept him or will people reject him? There were no doubt several people who would have said, well, I think he's probably going to be opposed by a lot of people. But no doubt there were a few who said to themselves, the greatest opposition that he will receive will be from our religious leaders. But as you know, this is exactly what happened. The Romans were perfectly content for our Lord to come and preach his gospel message. But the scribes and the Pharisees, on the other hand, they contradicted him, they set traps for him, they tried to keep people away from him, and ultimately, the final result was they put him to death. They murdered him. How is this possible, we might say? The Jews had been waiting for the Messiah for millennia. God had specially chosen them as a people different from all others. He had guided them for centuries upon centuries through his prophets in order to get them ready for that day when the Messiah would come 
and they would be ready to embrace his message and accept everything that he had, he had said. But instead of, of embracing him or embracing his messengers, they put the prophets to death, they, they put the greatest prophet of them all, St. John the Baptist, to death, and they finally ended by putting our Lord himself, the Messiah himself, to death. Our Lord kind of paints a picture of this reality that the religious leaders can often work in the vineyard of the Lord in such a way that they oppose God in a more damaging way than the forces of the world, that bad religious leaders are often the cause of the ruin of souls much more than bad men in the secular world. This has happened time and time again. And our Lord, in his parable, he kind of depicts this as a particular design of divine providence, that there is this field of our Lord, and God sows good seed in the field. But there's also an enemy. The the name of the enemy, or the specific nature of the enemy, is not specified. But St. Augustine tells us in in the reading for Matins today, that the enemy can very well be people within the church itself. And that enemy comes and he sows bad seed in the midst of the good seed. And so weeds come up in addition to that good seed. The weeds that will choke and poison and malnourish the souls that are supposed to be fed by the message of our Lord Jesus Christ. Beware of false prophets, our Lord says to the people of his time, who come to you in the clothing of sheep, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. They look like servants of God, but they will destroy your soul. As I say, this is the plan of providence. It's not a mistake. It's like it's not like God didn't anticipate this. God had one of two choices. He could have made a supernatural order in such a way that God directly intervenes at every single time to guide us. Or he can make a supernatural order such that he wants to work through human agents. And if he chooses to work through human agents, and you know that's exactly what he has done, then because they have free will... They can turn against him. The very people that he has chosen to promote his message and lead people to salvation can work against him and lead them in the opposite direction. Why would God do this? Why would this be the disposition of divine providence? Why wouldn't God make a situation such that it's black and white, such that there's just good, and evil, they're, they're clearly separated. So where the burden is put upon us to make the discernment, to decide, to make the intellectual, the prudential intellectual decision, the truth is over here, and the truth is not over there. Why does it have to be so complicated? Well, my dear faithful, this, this is a test for us. This is a test of our fidelity to our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a test of the purity of our own soul, the purity of our own intentions in this life as we pursue the will of God. The thing is, it's not like we don't know what we believe. 
Our Lord has clearly revealed to us what his teaching is. It's, it's not hidden. We have now 21 centuries of the Catholic Church, consistent teaching all throughout the ages. It's not like we have to, we, the, the church is reinvented or revelation is reinvented with each generation. That is not the case. We have so much of our Catholic tradition to show clearly what the teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ himself is. It's kind of striking that, that even in, in St. Paul, St. Paul in his own day, I mean, he's, he's one of the first preachers of the gospel of Christ. And, and what does he say to the Galatians? He says, if I or an angel from heaven teach you anything different from what I have taught you, let him be anathema. If you hear anything different from what I've taught you, even from me, you have to reject it. What I have taught you is very clear. We don't have to make it up. or, or do, We don't have to go through this painful process of, of trying to say, is this, is the truth over here or is the truth over there? If you hear something different, that's not the truth. This was the argument that St. Athanasius himself made just when, when the church was, we may say, only three centuries old. I mean, now it's 21 centuries old. But when it was only 300 years old, St. Athanasius, in, in the presence of Arianism, you know, there's, he was like looking at all these Catholics, and there was all these Catholics saying to themselves, is our Lord God, or is he not God? I mean, there's this priest, Arius, who says he's not God. There's all these bishops who say that he's not God, whereas there's these other bishops who say that he is God. And, and for St. Athanasius, this was a scandal. How is it that after three centuries of us professing the divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ, that people are confused about this issue? It's very clear. Down from the beginning, we've always believed that he is God. So, this situation wherein there are bad religious leaders who are teaching falsehoods that are against the message of our Lord Jesus Christ has always existed and always will exist. It's a trial for us, and we must be ready to adhere to the truth no matter what. And especially we must see that it existed at the very time of our Lord. It exists in the gospel itself. When our Lord himself, God himself, came on this earth, he was working incredible miracles that nobody had ever seen to that degree. He was teaching the pure truth of God. What did the religious leaders of the time say to those people? They said to our Lord, do we not speak rightly in saying that you are possessed by the devil? This man is not good. He does not teach the truth. He is not from God. And this put the people of that time who wanted to serve God in a very difficult position. They had to say to themselves, here's my religious leaders. They hold a position of authority. This is what they're saying. They're saying this man is bad. On the other hand, this man is so clearly good. He's doing so many good things. He's teaching such a beautiful message. Who do I choose? Which side do I choose? And we know that whatever decision they would make, whatever decision they did make, it had huge consequences 
for their own souls. If they rejected our Lord Jesus Christ and chose to follow those scribes and Pharisees, they lost their souls forever. If you reject our Lord Jesus Christ, you lose your soul. This is what was at stake. This, let me say, difficult trial for these people and making this decision, do I go with, with those religious leaders or do I follow this great prophet? They had this great privilege of seeing the incarnate God and being taught by him. And on the other hand, they have faced immense pressure to reject him and they had to make a choice. What kind of pressure were they facing? What kind of pressure were they up against in their time? Well, they were, they knew that they would be subject nothing, to nothing less than cancellation from their own community. They would be excommunicated from their own community if they chose to follow our Lord. This is the pressure that the scribes and Pharisees were putting upon them. There's this very beautiful story of the, of the healing of the blind man precisely because the blind man adheres to our Lord so firmly and with so much common sense in, in John chapter 9. But his parents, unfortunately, are not that way. So I'm sure you know the story. Our Lord cures the blind man. He washes in the, in the pool. He sees he's been, he's been blind from his birth. And they're asking the blind man, you know, how did, how is it that you see since you've been blind from birth? He's like, well, the man was named Jesus. You know, he anointed my eyes. He told me to wash. And I did that. And I see. That's, that's what happened. And they're like, well, I, I don't know if I believe that. So I'm, I'm going to go talk to your parents. Let's bring your parents in. And this is what happened when they asked the parents. The parents say to the scribes and the Pharisees, how he now sees, we do not know. Or who has opened his eyes? We do not know. Ask him. He is of age. Let him speak for himself. These things his parents said, says St. John, because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed among themselves that if any man should confess him to be Christ, he should be put out of the synagogue. He would be canceled. He would be excommunicated if he supported our Lord. This was the very difficult situation these people found themselves in when our Lord himself came upon the earth. This conflict between what their religious leaders were saying and what God himself was saying. And they had to make a choice. They had to make a decision how they would react. We see in the gospel three different types of reactions. The first reaction, that of St. Peter, who, when our Lord asked him, said to the apostles, will you also leave and go away? So Peter said to him, Lord, where shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. You are the truth. I recognize that. I can't leave that behind for anything. I will not leave you. I cannot leave you. Even if it means that I have to be excommunicated, even if it means that I have to be put to death, I can't leave you. The second response is the response of the Pharisees who said to our Lord, oh, you give testimony of yourself. Your testimony is not true. You cast out devils 
by the devil. Your miracles are not from God. You do not observe the Sabbath day. You don't observe the rabbinical traditions. Therefore, no matter what you do, you're not from God. And the people of the time who had a scrupulous conscience, they said to themselves, well, I mean, these are my religious leaders. They are in a position of authority. And they say that this man is bad. It doesn't make any sense to me. Everything he does seems to be good. But my religious leaders say he's bad. So he must be bad. And I have to follow them. And so they rejected our Lord. The third response is the response of those who are on the fence. And they're unable to commit to either side. They just sort of stand back and they watch the things that are happening. And they're plotting very carefully, like, how do I kind of save myself and follow this this great master at the same time? This sort of response is often seen in the Gospel of St. John. But here's what is said in John chapter 7. There was much murmuring among the multitude concerning him. For some said, he is a good man. And others said, no, but he seduces the people. Yet no man spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews. They're kind of holding their cards tightly to their chest. They're not willing to speak openly and say, he is good. There's nothing to matter. He, he is so good. I want to follow him and then suffer the consequences of being canceled. They just want to hold back, place themselves in a position of safety by not committing themselves. There is one reaction that you do not find in the gospel, and that is the state of a contest. You don't find any state of a contest in the gospel. On the contrary, you find our Lord condemning state of a contest. He says to the people, he says, the scribes and the Pharisees have sat on the chair of Moses. He doesn't say, the chair of Moses is empty because these men are bad and they're teaching falsehood. But no, he says, the scribes and the Pharisees have sat on the chair of Moses. Do what they command you, but do not imitate their deeds. Obey them, but do not imitate them. This is what he says. So there's no state of a contest in the gospel. What happened in this situation? What was the response? Well, it's, it's the same response as there always will be. Some follow our Lord. Some reject our Lord. Some do neither. Unable, they just sort of step back and do not move in either direction. But what we must see clearly is that the, the providence of God certainly gave to every single person living in that time the grace that they needed in order to follow our Lord. First of all, the grace in order to see where the truth lie. Secondly, the moral strength that was necessary for them to follow our Lord and suffer the consequences, whether it be cancellation, whether it even be martyrdom, the loss of their own lives. There was nobody in that time who would have been able to say to our Lord, Lord, if only you had made it clearer, I would have followed you. If only you had made it easier, I was willing to 
follow you if it costs this much sacrifice. But because I had, would have to suffer excommunication, that was too much. That was too much. Why didn't you make it easier for me to follow you? They all have the grace. They all have the grace. So the same is certainly true of our own times. As you know so well, there's so many weeds in the vineyard of our Lord. And the weeds were not sown there by the devil. The weeds were sown there by our religious leaders. There is this great weed of the Novus Ordo Mass, this mass that was concocted by a committee of clerics who specifically wanted to water down the mass in order to please, not God, but to please non-Catholics. And now they're saying to everybody, as they did to Archbishop Lefebvre, you have to love this mass. You have to go to this mass and like it, or else you will be sanctioned. And people have to make a choice. People have to make, even those who are on the fence, they have to take a stand, figure out how they're going to respond. There's that noxious weed of communion in the hand that was so imprudently permitted after the council, wasn't anticipated by the council, but so wrongly permitted by the council. Surely a, a terrible sacrilege of disrespect against the body of our Lord Jesus Christ. The very definition of the sacrilege is to take something that is sacred and misuse it. And this is what is happening everywhere. The disrespectful manner in which our Lord is received. You can read about it on the SSPX website. Just all of the abominations with, with the particles of our Lord going everywhere because our Lord is handled by everybody. There's nothing worse than the mishandling of our Lord Jesus Christ in the Blessed Sacrament in the church today. This is like the number one duty of the priest, of the religious leader, to protect the body of our Lord. And instead of that happening, the body of our Lord is just given promiscuously to anybody and everybody. It's given to non-Catholics, it's given to the divorced remarried. In addition to, to these terrible things, there's, there are the poisonous weeds of of false teaching, the, the teaching that a man can be saved in any religion whatsoever, the teaching that every single man has the right to worship God however he pleases, the teaching that the church is a democracy and that one must respect the idols of Amazonian gods just because that's their religion, or that we have to praise the homosexual lifestyle and no longer say that it is against nature because of the dignity of man or whatever. And the last thing that, that we want to happen to us is that we start calling these weeds nourishing wheat, or that we start ingesting these weeds because it does, they do, kill the soul. We do have to follow our Lord and save our soul. And to the degree that, that we slip into this diabolical disorientation where we're calling what is healthy, tradition, our Catholic identity, we're calling that poisonous, and we call what is poisonous healthy, all of these abuses, all of this rejection of the authentic teaching of our Lord, then we will be poisoned. If you take some strawberry shortcake and, sorry, if you, if you take some, some cyanide and you call it strawberry shortcake, it will kill you. If you misidentify it as 
strawberry shortcake, when it's not, when it's cyanide, um, you will die. So if we do not keep these weeds out of our souls, we will be poisoned. We will be lost. If anyone, even an angel from heaven, teach you a doctrine different, let him be anathema. He will be lost. So my dear faithful, just like the Jews at the time of our Lord, we do have the graces necessary today to discern what we need to do to follow our Lord. Our Lord is giving to everybody the graces necessary to save their souls. There will never be a time when there are not weeds in the field of the church. Sometimes perhaps there's more, there will be more of a sacrifice to follow our Lord. Perhaps there's, it's, it's a bigger ask for us today than it has been in times past, in better times of the church, to follow our Lord. But this is a test of our fidelity. It's a test of our fidelity to our Lord. If we are faithful to our Lord, we will receive the greater reward. To whom else shall we go? He has the words of eternal life. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.